dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Well, hey there, welcome folks to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey there, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Alrighty, so you survived another fair as a fair mom. How'd that go? It was not as stressful as it was last year for some reason. Maybe it's because they had an abbreviated schedule and... We showed two species in one day. Hey, there you go. So he had, remind me again, was that his second year bucket calf or was that a steer? That was a bucket calf. Ah, that was a bucket bucket calf. Yeah, his bucket calf died earlier this year and his cousin Clayton had an extra. So Uh, she got a little um, extra feed because she ate with his steer and, uh, is Clayton's heifer, and so she grew a little bit. <laughs> she weighed about 600 pounds. <laughs> Holy buckets. Holy buckets, Batman. Yeah, yeah that she, was pretty pretty hefty little bucket calf there. Yeah. Wish she could have gave some of that weight to his one of his pigs because she didn't make weight. She only weighed 204, and they're supposed to weigh 220, and yeah, we had to bring her home, so. I mean, for real, this year of all years, I mean, yeah. come on, guys. Let's just have the show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I wasn't about to let her go for 15 cents a pound, what the floor price was. So, yeah. Bring her home, fatten her up. That's on my list to do, to call and see if I can find a hole for her somewhere. But Might have been good to let her go for 15 cents a pound floor price. No. (laughs) (laughs) At least she'd have a hole. (laughs) Um. Yeah, so uh, you and I were were judging over at the Gray County Fair this yesterday, and uh, that was kind of fun, wasn't it? Yeah, I did the open class photography, and wow. it was different than what I normally used to because they usually split up the classes, split up the subjects for the open class. They have like, I don't know, flowers and scenery and livestock or animals, and they split them up that way. Well, apparently they didn't have any enough for each category so they just put them all together and it made it kind of (laughs) difficult you know what I'm really glad it's you judging photography because whenever I do judging at at county fairs I tell them just give me the miscellaneous projects the posters the the notebooks all of the stuff that uh you know nobody else wants to judge and you just need somebody that can you know look at them and go yep that's a blue ribbon (laughs) (laughs) So this year, though, I got to judge the pet project, Kayleen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How'd that go? Well, they weren't able to have their pet show because of coronavirus. And so uh, the kids who were in the pet project made posters with pictures of them and their dog or their cat. And uh, it was really cute. Um, Pretty, pretty adorable. Some of the, the stories that you got to read on the poster. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a real quick, I think I was done in maybe all of 30 minutes. <laughs> and there's no consultation judging. It's like, okay, <laughs> there you yeah, go. It took, it took me over an hour because I wrote comments on all the, the f- entries. So I, I give comments too. I just don't, you know, spend a lot of time on comments on the posters. Maybe I should more next year, but, um, so yeah, for those of you listening and you're getting ready for your own modified fairs, good luck. Um, remember our attitude trickles down to the little, so go forth and make it the best you possibly can. Cause that's the make it, make the best better attitude, right? Kayleen? Yeah, there was a few times I probably should have been reminded of that. We all survive. Hey, I, um, I tell you what, I get more giggles from people out of my mask that has the, uh, the mustache on it than anything. I think it brightens <laughs> people's days. So, uh, okay. What yeah. else happened this week? Um, oh, we cannot forget Burger King and the lemongrass kerfuffle. Have you heard about this, Kayleen? Yeah, I heard about it. I saw the commercial. I don't know what night it was, but I saw happened to see the the yodeling kid on the commercial. So Burger King has this new deal out. And frankly, here's the thing. Um, you know, they are, a, they are a multinational corporation. They have shareholders they have to answer to. They have customers that they have to answer to. And we have been hearing time and time again from the industry that customers want to know that we are producing a, a sustainable project or product, right, Kayleen? Right. I mean, you've sat in on those meetings. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to figure out what the definition of sustainability is. But we know one thing, cow burps, cow emissions are not the singular cause of our downfall. In fact, cows are actually part of the solution to the whole climate warming, climate change thing that you want to talk about. I mean, the the methane that they produce can be can be, you know taken care of that's that's what you've learned in those meetings that you sat in on right Kayleen yeah they the number they use is less than two percent of emissions from agriculture are that percentage of whatever so here's the thing you know okay Burger King you want to make a burger that is more sustainable whatever your definition is that's great you decide that you're going to feed lemongrass to cattle Okay, sure. Um, because you're doing that because it uh, reduces emissions. Evidently, it, it reduces their methane emissions, and you focus on that. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. But you know what? How about all of the cars that are sitting in your drive-throughs? How about an idling that are massively emitting, you know, amounts of, of fossil fuels into the air? Let's talk about the trucks that are bringing your frozen patties to the the stores let's talk about or the factory that has to make said fake meat patties (laughs) or you know just your store's carbon footprint yeah but but no it's easier to make a commercial with a catchy jingle and a cute kid and some little rhinestone cowboy get up and make jokes about cow farts and that's what you choose to use your marketing dollars on okay fine you know what you're a multinational corporation that's what you choose but at the end of the day, where are you going to source your beef? You yeah, know, piss off all the piss off all the farmers and ranchers that provide you with said beef. 
Well, honestly, farmers and ranchers have no say on where their beef goes, really, because they're buying it from the the commodities section. And most likely they are importing a large amount of lean to mix in with, you know, for their ground beef patties, because that's what happens in the United States. We ship our, um, our lean other, uh, you know, we, we ship that part to other places that are willing to pay a hefty price for it. And we buy it cheaper from overseas. You know, it's, it is the, one of the, the economic scale things <laughs> that people don't really comprehend very easily. And, and I probably misspoke on that. So I'm sure we'll get cards and letters about that too. Here's what, what kills me though. I spent two weeks in Vietnam in 2011 and Kayleen, they use lemongrass in everything. I'm, I'm not even kidding you with you there. It is <laughs> everywhere. And it is not a delicate taste, okay? I don't know that I've ever had it. <laughs> um, yeah, there was lemongrass encrusted fish. There was lemongrass used, you know, in vegan things because, you know, we had to eat tofu at one point. <laughs> I can't. And Jenny still doesn't eat rice because of her Vietnam trip. <laughs> you know, I just recently got back to eating rice, Kayleen, and, and it was... It, it's difficult, let me tell you. Um, so feeding lemongrass to cattle, I just want to know, what does that beef taste like? Because that's got to leave behind something. I, you know, we talk a lot about communicating with customers. And it's frustrating with it when a company like Burger King doesn't come to farmers or come to or mis, misrepresents some of the research that's out there. Because that's one of the other things that was brought up, right? With mm-hmm. they were misrepresenting a, a study out of California, if I remember right. It's frustrating when you have a multinational company that has a megaphone and they don't ask the farmers, they don't ask the people on the ground, how can we use it for your betterment? Because what's good for you is ultimately good for us. And then it's it's also frustrating when you're a farmer and you keep getting told, well, you got to move to sustainability. You got to move to sustainability. And then, you know, you are doing sustainable things, but then you get told by a multinational corporation that you are the, the root of all evil, essentially. It's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. So I'm sure, um, and, you know, good friends of ours, like uh, Brandy Buzzard, she's called them onto the carpet and said, hey, you know what, let's have a conversation about that. And she's, she's gotten some good responses from that. We'll, we'll learn more about that, I'm sure, when Brandy talks on our virtual Cattle U in, mm-hmm. a, couple, in, in a month or so, in September yeah. 8th through the 11th now. Uh, working on that diligently this week, too. Kayleen is working on the, the uh, schedules for that. Let's see, what else is going on? I had a really cool family connection that came out this week, Kayleen. I, I told you about this, didn't I? Um, I think I've told with you, told you many times that I have an ancestor who was born 100 years on my birthday before I was, right? Yeah. Okay. So her name was Esther Tina Latsky. And everybody always said Esther Tina was her own woman. And Esther followed her husband to Arizona. And that was pretty much nobody really heard from her and her side of the family for a long time. Uh, maybe some cards and letters here and there. Well, come out of the blue last week, I got an email from 
somebody who was asking me, was I related to Esther Tina Latsky because she was his grandma and he had some family photos that he wanted to find a home for. And sure enough, in the mail this week came family photos of not just Esther Tina, but of my grandparents, their wedding picture. If I remember right, it's, it is their wedding picture or their, their, um, one of their photos. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. Um, looking at Esther, she and I share a lot of similarities, Kayleen. Um, our, our mouths, our face shapes, very much a Latsky trait, I guess. I was you know, brushed off as, as on the other side, but it's just fascinating when you can reconnect with a side of your family that you think was lost. Have you ever had that happen? I don't really know right now, but I mean, when I was in grade school, I did a project on our family history and had some stuff that my grandma Orbaugh had. And it's kind of neat to discover all that, but I probably should go back to it and see. And the, and the Scott side, I mean, I don't really know a whole lot from the Scott side, so we'd have to discover that stuff too. You know, right now is an excellent time we have a lot of people that are communicating through zoom that are communicating through cell phone videos and, and, you know, I, uh, FaceTimes and, and such. Now is the time to record those conversations you have with your, your grandma and grandpa and your great grandpas and, and your great uncles and, and the folks that are older than you. And instead of just asking, well, how are you doing? Are you worried? Are you scared? You know what, let's start having conversations about what are your memories from your childhood? What was the worst chore that you ever had to do? What was your favorite chore? Um, how did you and grandpa meet and fall in love? Um, tell me about your wedding day. Tell me about uh, the first car you ever bought. These type of things, they seem mundane, but those are story starters. You and I, we work in in pulling stories out of people. That's, that's a typical conversation starter sometimes when you're a reporter, right? Yeah. And you think about it, you've got some kids right now that have the capabilities technologically that we never had. I would give anything, Kayleen, if I had my grandpa's voice on tape. Yeah, me too. I don't have any grandparents left, so. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I find myself kind of wondering, do I remember his laugh? Do I remember that? If I had it on tape, I would definitely be <clears throat> one happy girl. So take the time while you're, while you're stuck in quarantine, while you're not having a full and fulfilling life, gambling about without masks and, you know, hugging people and licking faces and whatever <laughs> you want to do um, outside of COVID. You know, let's, let's look at this as an opportunity to maybe discover a little bit more about ourselves. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, I got to say it, Kayleen, my sister turns 50 next week. Yeah, I bet she appreciates you spreading that everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she actually listens. <laughs> if she does, she's turning 50. You know, um, I always joke that she goes ahead of me, but it is kind of handy to have an older sister brave the trail for you, Kayleen. 
Yeah. <laughs> now you've got an older sister, but you're the, were you the first twin or you were you the last twin? I was the first one. Ah, there we go. So I was always considered the middle child. By like 10 minutes. <laughs> seven. <laughs> seven. <laughs> you were the baby for a whole seven minutes. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to decide what to do for her monumental birthday, because at one point in time, I was thinking, you know what, let's surprise her with a trip, and we'll go somewhere, and we'll do a sister's trip. Well, coronavirus put the kibosh on that, <laughs> so now I'm trying to figure out what, what can I get her that's monumental for a 50th birthday. Any ideas over there? I don't know. 50 shades of something <laughs> yeah, fill, her, fill her a box full of 50 items <laughs> that comes up a lot when you're doing google searches by the way um i guess i'll figure something out so all righty well uh anything else on your part of the world i've been talking a lot today's my 17th year at high plains journal anniversary <laughs> We should have like a celebration noise in there, you know, Whee! Yeah. <laughs> you got some champagne you're going to pop? No. <laughs> I tried to, tried to think back and decide what was the first story that I wrote, but I don't think I wrote very many that first year because I was the copy editor and not a full-time writer. We had a lot of people on staff 17 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, dug out some old pictures and found some of those. And- that I had taken at different story places. So it has to be asked, what's the biggest change for you in 17 years at High Plains Journal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Probably just the way things have evolved. I mean, before it was just writing and taking pictures and now it's everything else. <laughs> Podcasting and taking pictures and writing and... <laughs> doing some interviews and, and, uh, all of our events. And now we're dipping our toe into online virtual events. Yeah. (sighs) You know, it'll be, um, it was, it was a really good day 17 years ago when you came on board. It was pie meeting day. (laughs) (laughs) You got to explain that for people, Kayleen. (laughs) Pie meeting was our quarterly meeting that we had. Nobody ever brought pie. (laughs) Hey, there were pie charts. (laughs) I think I did bring a pie one time, but. I I think um, our former coworker, uh, Doug Rich, who's retired a couple of years back, he loves pie. (laughs) Loves it. That's his favorite dessert. He would eat it any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And Every time I think about the pie meeting, I think about Doug being one of the judges of the pie contest at the mm-hmm. Lawrence Fair, and he almost went into a diabetic coma. <laughs> he doesn't have diabetes. He almost gave himself diabetes. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. The sugar rush was unbelievable. <laughs> Bless his heart. Well, yeah, it's going to be a good week. Um, I say that with dental surgery two days from now. So don't be drugged me. up. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I am planning on Friday, not feeling a thing. I am going to be seeing pink elephants and it's going to be wonderful. 
are they pulling teeth or what are they doing? Oh, we're, uh, we're finally getting rid of my last two wisdom teeth. Mm. A few other things, but the wisdom teeth need to go because they are, are being less than wise. I'm a little worried though, because after they pulled the first two, I felt a sincere drop in my smarts. <laughs> <laughs> you should just leave them in there then. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I suppose I could lose a few brain cells via my teeth. We'll be okay. <laughs> so anyway, I, I still have mine. So I only have three. I didn't have four. Yeah, you're lucky. I'm now, I've, I've pre-bought all of the soft foods again. The, the puddings, the mashed potatoes, the jellos. I've got a couple of protein shakes that should, you know, last me while I'm recovering. And I figured out my last meal will be tomorrow at noon. So <laughs> <laughs> going pizza, baby. <laughs> and again, Garrett, the fellow will be on hand to, um, to take care of my sedated personage. Mm -hmm. okay. he said, yeah he, he learned a few lessons from the last time for example we're going to put a ramp on the two steps that go up to my porch <laughs> he doesn't want to pick you up well I guess last time I almost took him down with me <laughs> I am I'm a fun sedated person evidently <laughs> what do you it think happens. are you a fun sedated person well, the only two times I've ever been sedated was I had my children, so I wasn't very nice either time, so. <laughs> you know what I really miss in all of this coronavirus? I miss live music with an ice cold beer in my hand. You know, I just want to watch a concert outside under the stars with an ice cold beer in my hand. And at this point, I'd even be okay with the you know, the lovey-dovey couples that take up the first six rows of the standing room only in an outside concert. I'd even be okay dealing with that in front of me. <laughs> I'd even be okay with the girl that does nothing but twirl and hit you with her hair and her, and her purse because she's so into the music. I'd be okay mm -hmm. with that at this point. <laughs> I'd even be okay with yeah. the potties at this point, Kayleen, if it meant we could see live music outside. Yeah. I've been to a couple of rodeos, so I mean, it's not, I'm not that secluded right now. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and, what I'm, I'm, and I'm planning on going to Jason Bowl on August 1st. So <laughs> hey, what are you singing at? At Central Station. It was supposed to be Cody Canada, but they, it's Jason Bowlin now. Well, holy buckets, kids. Guess what mama's doing on August 1st? <laughs> we are making this one happen. I may be sedated still. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you folks doing out there? Drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, and do us a favor, head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. In this week's episode, we'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the July 20th print edition. We'll have our report from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondent, Laura Hafner. And Kayleen will bring us the latest on grain markets and we'll have our final thoughts. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day online. 
iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available now in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to catch up on the webinar recording at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. It is really not too shabby out there, except it's kind of uh, humid, Kayleen. So uh, this desert girl doesn't like the humidity very much. (laughs) So crank up that AC to dry out the air, grab a cool drink, and ride with us here on HPJ Talk. This week's cover story is by field editor Lacey Newland. Hummus Company opens new avenues in the sesame market for Oklahoma and Texas growers. Take a couple of cups of chickpeas, some chickpea liquid, half a cup of water, and around a quarter cup of sesame, tahini, canola oil, lemon juice, and some other spices and seasoning. Mix it all together and you have a Middle Eastern dip known as hummus, Lacey writes. The Sabra brand hummus is the obvious leader in any supermarket aisle. It has been popular since the company started in 1986. Cyber maintains 60% plus category market share. And since the pandemic, the demand and buying power of the product has only increased. And although sesame seeds are not a new crop in North America, in the United States, they're mostly grown for the oil market rather than tahini purposes. Lacey spoke with the people at, at Sabra and said that the sesame growing in fields across Oklahoma and Texas the last few years are perfect for sesame oil. However, it doesn't contain the right sensorial properties that Sabra would designate, but much like other crops such as wheat and sunflowers, each destination market is looking for specific characteristics. When it comes down to sesame, these end markets are scrutinizing oil content, protein, and sugar content. I'm really excited about this because I am a huge fan of Sabra hummus, personally. It's not a an endorsement there from the High Plains Journal, but (laughs) it's one of the things I always have in my freezer. And I'm really excited that part of the Sabra ingredients is this tahini that they get from sesame seeds that's going to be grown in Oklahoma. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I don't think I've ever bought it, but I'll eat it if it's it's out, but I've never, never bought any. (laughs) Okay, so my favorite is roasted pine nut hummus. There's just something about the pine nuts that makes me happy. And in fact, I'll buy extra pine nuts and sprinkle it in in my hummus. Um, But a few years back, I discovered a different brand of hummus that was um, out of Trader Joe's and it is chocolate hummus. And you think it's gross, but it's actually amazing. It's a sweet. And so uh, sweet hummus is now um, a growing market in in the U.S., and I just saw the other day that Sabra is rolling out a chocolate dessert hummus. I'm pretty excited because it's low calorie and uh, it's one of the things that I can eat with um, in moderation on my diet plan. So I'm a hummus connoisseur, let me tell you, Kayleen. <laughs> or so than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, give it a try though. Uh, what I like to eat it with is usually um, vegetables, um, but pita bread is always, always amazing. So I I support my wheat guys as well. Well, now, Kayleen, you also had a story inside 
uh, webinar details drought fire conditions for Colorado. So Colorado and many of our surrounding states are suffering from ongoing drought conditions. As of July 9th, you write, about 34% of Colorado is in the D3 or extreme drought rating on the U.S. Drought Monitor. And you spoke with Colorado Assistant Cl State Climatologist Becky Bollinger at the July 9th webinar hosted by the National Integrated Drought Information System, the Southwest Climate Hub, Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State, and the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center. Bollinger said that in early July, there was a D4 rating introduced in the far southeast corner of the state, which would be Baca and Prowers counties, but that's since been removed after the area received about an inch of rain, and the rating only lasted a week. You know, we had massive rains, it feels like, just this last uh, weekend and, and first part of the week, right, Kayleen? That webinar was on July 9th, so it's been roughly two weeks since that they talked about that and it sounds like that southeast Colorado where they were really needing the rain they've gotten some and they've gotten some hail and some bad weather too but she uh, Becky Bollinger is hoping that the monsoon season is going to start and it's going to provide some relief I was going to look up the drought monitor and see what it looks like right now hold on let me find it yeah I know um here in Dodge City we got over an inch if not more so, and the lawns have just perked up. In fact, I thought I had had a good control of my goat head stickers and they came back with a vengeance, Kayleen. <laughs> I've got a good crop of them right now. So I think I'm gonna have to go back out there and spray those again. Yeah, I need to mow again, but it's getting kind of hairy, but I'm glad that the pasture's kind of perked up and it looks a little better. Mm -hmm. It looks like Parts of Colorado are still in the D3, which is the extreme drought rating. And the July 16th drought monitor shows about 36% of Colorado in the D3 and D4. But there's no D4 represented on the map. So there's been rain in that area, I know I've seen. Well, moral of the story is, you know, folks, it's dry out there still, even if you've had rain. So let's just watch our uh, our sparks and um, police those butts, okay? On the Opinion and Editorials page, web editor Shauna Rumbaugh has a column this week focusing on the fourth H. And a letter to the editor comes from Tom Bell, president and CEO of the Kansas Hospital Association, titled, Let's Take Politics Out of Masks. Another letter to the editor comes from Rhonda Perry, Howard County, Missouri, cattle and row crop farmer and program director of the Missouri Rural Crisis Center titled A House of Cards, Meat Plant Closing Show Strains of System. Hey, Kayleen, you know how you take the politics out of masks? I don't know. <laughs> All right. The minute we start seeing those online cowgirl bling boutiques start offering masks in animal print with rhinestones, that's when we start, <laughs> when, that's when we stop politicizing masks. I'm telling you right now, folks, just go ahead and get you some fun ones. You know, there's no need to make it drab. And uh, ladies, I saw in Walmart the other day that Hanes, you know, the, the company that makes the, the nice soft coverings for the other end of your body, has switched over to making cloth reusable masks for the top part of your body. They're blank ones. They're, they're white or, or black. And you know what? Fire up the crickets and go. Go forth and cricket your, to your little heart's content and make you some fun masks to wear. Make some fun masks for the family, for the kids. You know, use it as an opportunity to show your individuality. I, that's what I say. 
course, I also did buy some with mustaches and um, cows on them. So <laughs> the Facebook ads that pop up on your social media feeds, they had ones on mine that were animals with their tongues hanging out. They had horses with their big teeth in their tongue, and then they had some cow ones too. <laughs> I'll tell you what, have some fun with it. Let's have fun with it, okay? There's no sense in, in, you know, being drab about it. Well, hey, and David Murray has another story inside on the dicamba um, issue, Dicamba Products Wild Ride. This is the second in his four-part story series that looks into the needs of growers when it comes to farm chemicals. And you can find more on his series online at hpj.com. Jenny, you had your common ground column this week, the magic red bandana. Now, my, na- my dad rarely had a red one. He always had the blue ones. Really? Yeah. See, my dad always every once in a while, but not not very often. <laughs> See, my dad had a few blue ones, but he always carried red because he could use it for so many things. You know, he could use it as a flag for his oversized loads. Um, he could see it easier if he dropped it. You know, it, it didn't blend in with the background so much. So, <laughs> yeah, my dad's red bandana. I don't know about your dad's red bandana, but when I was a kid, that thing was a Band-Aid. It was a snot rag. It was the dinner napkin. It was the grease rag. (laughs) Sometimes all in the same day, people. (laughs) They have a nice one for Sunday. (laughs) You know, dad had white ones, white linen ones that mom would iron for church. And uh, (laughs) actually white cotton. And when I started ironing, I practiced on dad's hankies and uh, I scorched a few. Oops. (laughs) But dad's red bandana has now become a multi-purpose thing. It's now his mask. Um, He and my mom are of an age where they really need to be making sure that they protect themselves when they go out in public. And um, they've got some comorbidities. They're at an age that is susceptible. And so, They've always had masks anyway because of my mom's breathing issues. We've always had a box of them at the house. You know, if there's fires, my mom has to wear them because she can't handle the particulates in the air. So this wasn't anything for them to just start wearing them outside. Although I got to say this, Kayleen, when they do have dad's red bandanas on, they do look like a geriatric Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) I saw a guy at the store that... I won't tell you about the the one guy I saw, but the other one had a bandana on and sunglasses and a ball cap, and he looked (laughs) kind of menacing. So, (laughs) yeah, the other one had the other one. I don't know if he was trying to be funny or what he was point he was trying to prove, but he had a pair of women's undergarments on his face in the grocery store. Folks, that is going (laughs) to help anything. We're now going to have the masked people of Walmart. (laughs) Yeah. We also have a livestock feature from K-State's Lisa Mosier. Beef cattle experts outline pillars for sustainable ranches. You know, we were talking about that earlier, Kayleen. Um, In ag, the word sustainability is often associated with environmental topics, but a senior official with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association said it also has economic and social ties. Um, Mariah Johnson, NCBA's Senior Director of Sustainability Research, was a recent guest on the Kansas State University Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat podcast. 
And Johnson said the three pillars of sustainability are, are economic, environmental, and social. And there are ways that cattle ranchers can impact each of these on a local level. NCBA is a contractor to the beef checkoff and Johnson's research is funded through checkoff support. And she said, producers need to first focus on economics because, quote, if we don't make money on our operations, they are not sustainable, end quote. Read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the Print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. And if you've got a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal's Cattle U has moved to a virtual event during the week of September 7th to 11th. Don't miss your chance to hear from the top names in the cattle industry and learn how you can bring more value to your herd. Sessions will target all segments of the cattle business, from the cow-calf producer to the feedlot manager. For registration details, visit cattleu.net. time for an update from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondence brought to you by the Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unruf Earth Manufacturing, AgriPro Seed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF. This is Kayleen Scott here with Laura Hafner for our weekly All Aboard Wheat Harvest update. And I hear you guys are in Montana. Yeah, that's correct. We're currently sitting here in South Central Montana doing a little bit of wheat harvest here. And what's the nearest big city that people might recognize in South Central Montana? The most recognizable city, I think, would be Billings to most people. And I hear it's a little different up there. You're you're hauling the grain to not a traditional elevator, but instead the bins. Is it on the farmer's location? or? Yes, that's correct. So it is a little bit different. The further north we go, it seems that there's a lot more on-site storage, and that is true for this farm. And it's just, it's so remote and so rural that you don't have, you know, the local elevators like you do in, you know, say southwest Kansas, where you have one every 10 to 15 miles. So, yes, we haul directly into the farm site there and unload. Um, they do go through the scales and stuff like that, but we don't have all the stats that you would normally expect from the elevator, like the protein and the test weights and things like that. So it is a little bit different up here. So how does the wheat look in the field? So in the field, I've been kind of riding around with the guys in the combine, and there's there's quite a difference. Um, you know, it's a real hilly environment, and there's you know also flat valleys as well. So just due to changing conditions throughout the field, that can obviously have a change of yield. So I've seen anything from 20 to 30 bushels an acre, maybe like on a side hill. Um, then I've seen you know things as high as 70 to 80. Has it been dry, or have you guys encountered any mud or anything like that? No, we haven't encountered any mud. Today's a little bit overcast as I look out the window here. There's a small chance of rain, but we haven't had any rain delays so far. One thing that is a little bit interesting, the soil type is a little bit different in this part of the world. It can be a little affluent, and it, it really causes, it's almost a powdery type soil. And so even though it's not muddy out in the field, you have to be careful. The soil can be really soft in spots. And so when you're hauling those big loads in and out of the field, you can actually almost sink down into it. We actually had a uh, grain cart get stuck yesterday in one of those spots. So it can be a little bit deceiving, even though it is dry. Mm-hmm. And what? It, how, how warm is it up there? 
you know, it's actually been very warm. Um, it was over 100 degrees yesterday, so um, it can get warm up here just like it there, but usually this time of year, it can start getting pretty chilly at night. Sometimes it does get, you know, chilly in the camper. It's not unusual to have to throw on a hoodie at night or mm -hmm. in the morning, but the last several days have been extremely warm for this, this part of the world. What about the wind? Have you guys gotten any wind? We do. I was telling you before we started this, I, I, it's a little bit of a southwest Kansas kind of day. We do have quite a bit of wind today. So, again, on those soft spots in the roads, um, it's going to kick up a lot of dust. One thing to note, too, you talked about how it's a little bit different for the viewers who are used to, like, western Kansas or across the Great Plains. Typically, we have those straight north, south, east, west, you know, square roads. Up here, that's not always the case. So a lot of the roads are maintained by the farms itself. So that's kind of a little bit of a unique and different environment that we can go for miles and miles within the farm. But they're not necessarily like a county road, as we would expect, you know, um, maybe back in our part of the world in northwest Kansas. Mm -hmm. My husband worked for a crew a few years ago, and they went up into South Dakota, and he said the same thing. The roads aren't mile sections like they are here. <laughs> Sometimes mm -hmm. you had to drive and drive and drive. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it follows, you know, the contour of, of the area or the land that you're in. Well, that's interesting to see the differences of the different geographical locations. How long do you expect to be where you're at right now? Uh, we'll be here for several weeks. Um, and then after that, the crew will split. Some of them go up to um, extreme northern Canada. So they're going to be just shy of the Canadian border up there. And then some of the crew will head on over to um, kind of central North Dakota. And continue wheat harvest? Um, you know, it kind of depends. When we get to this part of the world, things can change up a little bit to some other small grains, for instance, like canola. So sometimes there is opportunities to harvest other things like also field peas and such. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of spring wheat in this part of the world. And then when we move over to the Dakotas, that will be some durum, which I guess is also, you know, a form of spring wheat. But, um, but yeah, we can also start doing some other small grains as well. well that sounds good. It's getting to be later in the season for some of that stuff to get started um how has your crew been doing they've been hanging in there really well they um we're all most of them are here at the moment and um they're putting in some really long days since we haven't had any rain days um and in the wheat moisture is holding so we've been able to start earliest in the morning and we're going until late at night we can't go too late like i said before the soil types are different and it, it flat out just gets kind of dangerous the soil can get kicked up when you have that many trucks going along those dirt roads and so they're shutting down somewhere between 10 and 11 o'clock at night but they're getting along really good i have to they have such good attitudes and my children are old enough this year that they become a little bit more active in the day-to-day -day operations out in the field and Gosh, I have to give them a shout out because they've been so patient and they include them in some of the activities If they are working on a little piece of equipment. You know, they might let them, you know, run some tools or patiently teach them something. So I've been, I'm really appreciative of, of everything they've done to, you know, include everyone this year. Well, that's pretty neat that they're able to be involved in the day-to-day -day operations. And I hear somebody had a birthday. They did. Little man had a birthday here recently. So, um, this is one of the first years that he has been in Montana for his birthday. Usually it's uh, north, northeastern Colorado, and we're a little bit ahead of schedule this year. So kind of the fun thing about being a harvest kid is you get to have your birthdays on the road and share them with your extended family, which is the crew. Uh, we ran out to Billings and did some fun, some fun different things up there. It was new to us, and, you know, we're not from that part of the world. So I think he made some good memories um, with his birthday. 
Well, that's even had a flaming some more milkshake. I didn't even know those existed. So they came to your table and lit the marshmallows on fire. So I think that'll be a memory he'll have for quite a while. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I'm glad he had a happy birthday. And I hope you guys have a safe rest of your week. And we'll talk to you again down the road some sometime soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Well, thanks again for that update. And remember, if you want to catch up with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews, visit their blog at allaboardharvest.com and look for their posts in the pages of High Plains Journal each week. All Aboard Wheat Harvest is brought to you by Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unreferth Manufacturing, AgriProceed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF, who remind you that we're all in this together. I'm talking with Oklahoma Congressman Frank Lucas about the USDA's box beef and fed cattle price spread investigation. First off, can you explain the purpose of the investigation and why it was launched to begin with? The initial uh, investigation, the initial target of this beef market analysis was the wild fluctuation in prices that we had after the Holcomb, Kansas uh, packing plant fire in August of 2019, when we saw substantial gyrations in the price of processed meat and upward, and we saw a dramatic drop uh, in the value of live cattle that was to be processed. With the COVID-19 pandemic and its effect on the packing industry, and once again, wild gyrations in the price consumers were paying and a near collapse in the value of live cattle going into the pricing markets, USDA expanded to include that. So it's a look at what went on after the Holcomb fire. It's a look at what has gone on in the COVID-19 related issues out there. This I would refer to as an analysis because it is a look at the economic impact and it's a long list of suggestions about how to address that. There are two other investigations still ongoing. The USDA is examining the, I'll say, regulated entities under the Packers and Stockyards Act to see if there were violations, that is, manipulation, collusion, restriction of competition, other unfair practices. That report is not available yet. That's ongoing. And the Department of Justice is in the process of an investigation. They're looking to see if any entities violated the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act, uh, thereby committing antitrust violations. So in addition to the analysis from USDA released this week, there are two potential criminal investigations, one at USDA and one at uh, Department of Justice ongoing. Congressman, why in particular are you so passionate about this investigation and obtaining answers? Well, I represent a district that is essentially the northwest half of the great state of Oklahoma. I've got uh, cow-calf producers. I've got feedlots. I have pork processing facilities, no beef packing plants in my district. I also, as the uh, past chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, we're always concerned about the ability to raise our food to create uh, the raw supply that we need, but how do you make sure that gets into the hands of the consumers in a safe and affordable fashion on the other side? The, what we've seen at, uh, in the markets in the aftermath of Holcomb and COVID-19 have caused tremendous financial hardships on my producers. It's dramatically, uh, for short periods of time, raised the cost of eating, living for folks on the other end, and I want to make sure that both producers and consumers are being treated equitably and the laws are being followed 
That's why I was happy to see the results of this market analysis and why I'm looking with great anticipation towards the other two investigations from USDA and the Department of Justice assumed and would expect that not only the legislative work I've been engaged in now, responding actually to a number of these issues before USDA officially brought them up, but looking at what other legislative uh, efforts we'll take to make the markets more efficient and make everything more equitable for everyone in the aftermath of soon all three uh, investigations. So what can you share about the results of the analysis so far? Well, essentially what USDA uh, did in their analysis, they didn't come up with uh, a definitive profound set of conclusions, but what they offered up were a number of circumstances where they felt like things could be changed that would improve the market process that would help make all three entities in the process, producers, processors, and consumers, have a more equitable situation. Things like, for instance, if some of these are issues that I am already working on legislatively with my colleagues around the country. Uh, one, of the, one of the areas dealt with uh, risk management. How do you have more education and how to fu- handle the futures markets so that, for instance, producers can hedge their products, protect themselves from these wild gyrations? Uh, Congressman Johnson from North Dakota and I have already filed the Livestock Risk Management and Education Act, an effort to try and make sure that uh, producers are brought up to speed on the current futures contracts and risk management strategies that are out there. Also in the recommendation, in addition to education, they talked about things like having smaller sized beef contracts so that smaller producers could use the futures market to hedge their products. Uh, Right now, you've got to have a substantial amount of beef online to be able to justify these hedge contracts, lower those down. They also suggested things like having the risk management agency, RMA, uh, at USDA, think about how to make their risk management tools more available to producers. But it wasn't just education uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, There's a, a suggestion in here about the nature of the packing industry and what size entities should be participating and how she'd have more competition. Uh, Congresswoman Fudge from Ohio and I have already introduced the Agricultural Security Risk Review Act. And what that does is, Lacey, it says that something called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, that has to and has since the 1970s review the purchase of any asset in the United States that potentially affects national security, Think about satellites, think about telecommunications, think about uh, defense-related issues, think about those kind of things. It would add food safety to the list of items to be considered in this review process, and it would make the Secretary of Agriculture a permanent member. Now, that won't reduce the foreign ownership that already exists in the United States, but it means from inevitably, hopefully, signing of this into law, any entity country, corporate enterprise, individual outside the nation who tries to buy into the United States, into the food processing industry, for instance, would have to be cleared. That's a big step in the right direction. They also uh, talk in their report in particular about uh, the processing industry. How do you create more opportunities 
for producers to sell their product. Uh, in 2018, just as an example, the top five packers processed 84% of the beef in the United States. And the USDA report, uh, which suggests we need more competition, well, uh, Colin Peterson, chairman of the Ag Committee, and I have already filed the Ramp Up Act, which is an effort to say that if you're a small processor in the United States, you're not federally inspected, but you're state inspected. Uh, if you want to upgrade your facility to be able to uh, meet federal inspection standards so you can sell across state lines, so you can sell out of the country for that matter, uh, then we'll provide you with up to $100,000 to upgrade your facilities, whether it's grinders or software or whatever you need to meet the USDA inspection standards. If in 36 months you use that equipment, that money, to upgrade your facilities and you meet USDA standards, then it'll be forgiven. There's $80 million in mandatory money, by the way, in this program. Uh, but the goal of creating more competition for live cattle, giving our producers more opportunities to sell. One of the things I suspect that will get the attention of a lot of the folks back home is there's provisions on how pork uh, prices are reported. Things like processors have to have a 14, have to report 14 days in advance how much pork, how many hogs they're going to process. They discussed the possibility of adding something like that, uh, beef to that kind of a provision. Uh, there's also in the report suggestions that USDA should have the same kind of subpoena authority that the Department of Justice has. And right now, USDA, even though they operate under the Packer and Stalkers Act, do not have the same subpoena enforcement tools that the Department of Justice has. They suggest that we need to look at adding, uh, giving USDA that kind of an authority to discover the facts. I think that's something to be worth looking at. But there's just a variety of things out there, Lacey, where it wouldn't create dramatic changes, but it, the things they propose, several of which I've already uh, have in legislative form and are working through the process here in the nation's capital, would make, I believe, the whole system entirely much better. Now, that said, there are those back home who look at that 84% of the meat, uh, the beef, uh, steers, and heifers, however you want to describe being processed by the f top five packers, and say that needs to be addressed. I would suggest that uh, just as important as this beef market analysis is that came out this week, we need to see what USDA reports under packers and stockers. We need to see what uh, the Department of Justice reports under the the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, and then based on those results, uh, then we may have to look at the whole entire situation. But the bottom line to me ultimately is, after Holcomb, after the gyrations we've seen with COVID-19, the existing laws on the books are coming into force. That's where we're getting these investigations, these reports. Now in Congress, as we've started to do in a number of areas, we have to respond based on the facts that are available to us. I'm a, my wife and I are cow-calf producers. I don't want to do anything that potentially harms this amazing industry we have in the United States that takes my cows, turns them into the most awesome steers and heifers that go through those feedlots that produce the most amazing steaks and hamburgers and roast that wind up on the table of consumers here and around the world. I don't want to do any harm, but by the same token, everybody in this process, producer, 
processor consumer needs to be treated fairly and equitably. And right now, there's much concern in my district, and I share those concerns, that that's not happened in the last couple of years, and we have to step up. That's our responsibility as legislators. As we await the results of the next analysis, what advice would you give to American farmers and ranchers who are struggling after such a difficult year? Well, you need to be sure that you're participating in the risk management programs at USDA, that you've signed up for uh, the payments that relate to the, uh, to the trade issues, uh, that you've signed up for the payments that were a part of the CARES Act to try and offset the effect of COVID-19. Use those resources that are available to you. And then, uh, as always, be frugal managers in tough times. I've been in the cattle business long enough to know that for every boom day, there's two tough days. Well, we're in the two tough days right now. But do everything to hold your enterprise together. And when we get the second two reports that go along with the analysis we have now, be prepared to help those of us in Congress uh, if it makes it clear that there has to be changes and we set about to make those changes, you got to back us up. Congressman, thank you so much for talking with me and shedding some light on the reports and what producers can expect in the future. And I suspect uh, when these next two reports come out, you and I'll visit again. All right. Thank you. High Plains Journal is bringing Wheat Sorghum U to you virtually August 11th and 12th. Don't miss this one-day event with speakers from around the High Plains, bringing you the education and tools you need to boost your wheat and sorghum bottom lines. Registration is free. Don't delay. Save your seat today at hpj.com. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Egg Resources on July 14th. Corn was down at $3.36. Wheat was up at $4.12. Milo was down at $3.36, and soybeans were down at $7.88. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our soil health genetics issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes July 27th with a story from Dave Bergmeier. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in the first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to check out the event recording at hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. 
And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail.